Eleven years ago today, at 11.56 p.m., Dr. Robert Smith, a professor of preaching at Beeson Divinity School, was woken up, he and his wife, by a phone call from the authorities telling them that their youngest son, Antonio Maurice Smith, at 34 years old, had beat his parents to the grave. The phone call awakened Dr. Smith and his wife, and as she answered it, she didn't utter a sound, and his heart was racing. He said it seemed like an eternity. Anthony, or, or as he was known to his parents more affectionately, Tony, was working at a restaurant, and he had been shot during an attempted robbery. Dr. Smith recounts desperately in those moments, asking God to save Tony's life and to glorify himself through saving it. Because he had great aspirations for Tony. He prayed that he would be spared so that he could serve God at an even higher level of consecration. But an hour later, another phone call informed them that beyond a shadow of a doubt, Tony was dead. And their hearts broke. Now during the trial that took place some months later, Dr. Smith recalls looking at Tony's murderer, staring at the back of his head in the courtroom. Then, only an 18-year-old boy. He saw the face of this boy's mother and some of the family members weeping as the judge sentenced him to many, many years in prison. And he prayed about all this. He prayed about his feelings toward and his relationship with this young man. Several years ago, Dr. Smith wrote an article for Christianity Today where he describes this. And I'm going to read just a little bit of it to you this morning. He says, Following our son's murder, which did not seem to have any redemptive value, the question God asked me was, do you really believe what you preach? For 44 years, I had preached about the forgiveness that Joseph and Job and Jesus extended to those who brought great pain in their lives. I knew how to explain, illustrate, and apply forgiveness from a biblical perspective, but now God was telling me that if I really believed what I had been preaching, then I must, by His grace, live that forgiveness now. Thirty years prior to Tony's murder, I had also been working at a store on a Saturday night around the same time, and I was also robbed at gunpoint. But God spared me. And so I struggled with how God could spare people like Rahab or Peter or me, but not spare my son Tony. I asked prayer warriors to pray for me as I prepared to write the young man and to pray that he would respond affirmatively and ultimately add my name to the visitors list so I could come and tell him in person, Jesus loves you and forgives you and so do I. After nearly two years, in September of 2012, I finally mailed that letter. And he added me to his visitors list in 2014. Now folks, this was written in 2015. And since then, Dr. Smith has let the world know that this young man has come to faith in Jesus. And he hopes one day upon his release to attend Bible school, to find out who is this great God that could forgive someone even like him. 
through a grieving father like Dr. Smith. And if that's not already amazing enough, Dr. Smith has expressed his desire and intention that a scholarship would be set up in his late son's name and be awarded to this young man so he can go and study the Bible. Friends, when we talk about being a new kind of humanity in Jesus, this is what we mean. Our old humanity is fearful and violent and angry and vengeful, but in and by and through Jesus, we become something entirely new. We can be this kind of church for this world. Have you ever heard someone say either when they've made a mistake or uh, intentionally hurt someone, they'll say something like, well, you know, I'm only human. Well, that sounds like we think being human means that it, it means that we're inherently flawed and even sinful things, right? But when God created human beings, we read about in Genesis 1, do you remember what God said about humanity when he created it? Male and female, he created them in his image. He said they were very good. He created human beings to rule over creation, to have a gentle and compassionate and caring dominion over all the creatures and lands and to reflect God's glories to the heavens as holy priests. That was the kind of humanity we were intended to be. But we followed after not God's glory, but our own glory instead. We followed not after God's wisdom, but our own wisdom instead. And we ended up getting neither, ironically. Nevertheless, God made humanity to be good, not bad. And when Jesus saves us from our sin and from ourselves to His grace and Himself, He begins the sanctifying process of making us really, truly, actually human again, just like Jesus is. If you want to know what humanity is supposed to look like, you look at Jesus. And if you want to, look, want to know what your humanity can be like, it's becoming more and more like Jesus. When you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit begins a work in you, a lifelong work, over the course of many years, to restore that kind of humanity for God's glory and for the good of this world that He created. And friends, this is the only possible explanation for why Robert and Wanda Smith could offer forgiveness and restoration to the murderer of their son. Because they weren't acting out of their old humanity, but they were acting out of the new humanity that Jesus gave them. Although this young man's intention was to destroy, their intention in Jesus was to create and to restore. And our passage this morning shows us how the church can be impossibly, impossibly forgiving through our Lord Jesus. So for the last few weeks, as a, as a brief review, we've moved from talking about Jesus as the Creator and Redeemer and King of all of human history on to talking about how if we 
believe this. It'll cause us to, to suffer. We'll have to avoid the pitfalls of legalism, which is trying to earn God's love. We'll have to dodge the, the temptations of paganism, which ignores God's greatness and chases after lesser spirits and lesser things and desires. And now we're talking about how the church is made entirely new, something utterly unique and different in the person and work of Jesus. Folks, when we come to Him, we are connected to His life. We are so enfolded into His very being that we can't help but be transformed. Jesus opens a brand new kind of future to us and restores us, and in Him we are finally free to do what we should have been doing all along, to serve our broken and hurting world. Last week we saw how the Apostle used the metaphor of taking off our old and sinful selves like you would take off and discard old, raggedy, and torn clothing. And so in Jesus, as new human beings, we take off things like sexual sin. We get rid of sins of speech. And in in so doing, we find ourselves being transformed and renewed, ready to be resurrected into something else. We stop trying to hurt people, to take advantage of each other. We don't let things like race or class or politics or culture be the dividing walls that they've always been for humanity. No, instead in Jesus, we believe and confess that all of us who are sinners in our own right are equally loved and forgiven, accepted and secured in Him and Him alone. And so now that we've heard that we have to take off our old rags. We have to discard our former humanity. What does it look like, Paul would have us ask, what does it look like now to step into our new humanity, to put on Christ's righteousness, to live into these resurrected lives we've been given? Well, he begins to answer this question in verse 12, if you would look with me. Paul writes, Therefore, as God's chosen ones... Holy and dearly loved. Put on something else. Take off those sexual sins. Take off that sins of speech and put on instead compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. What does that look like? It looks like bearing with one another. Forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against another just as the Lord The truly human Jesus has forgiven you, so also, church, are you to forgive. Paul continues so clearly with this metaphor here. Put on, that is, clothe yourself in Christ and His righteousness and who He is. And look at the titles that He gives to us. Ordinary followers of Jesus. None of us are dignitaries or royals. Ordinary people like us, Paul tells us, are God's chosen ones. Chosen. But chosen for what end? We're not chosen because we're better than anybody. Paul blasts that out of the water. Why are we chosen? We are chosen to be holy, that is set apart and dearly loved. We are to be set apart from this decaying world and unto Jesus. We are deeply loved and cherished by Him. 
And what an incredible identity that is that we have in God. All the things that we want to wrap our identity, all the things that we want to put on, uh, where we live, how we vote, what we eat, where we go, what team we're for, all those things that we want to put on as our identity, no better identity could we have than chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, by Christ Himself. If you follow Christ, that is how God views you this morning. If you are a follower of Jesus, that is what Christ thinks of you, warts and all. As a chosen people, as a holy people, as a dearly beloved people. You know, on Wednesday nights, we've been going through this book by Dane Ortland, Gentle and Lowly, and it's amazing how often we have to be reminded that when Jesus says He loves us, He means it. We say, I love you to all kinds of people and don't mean it. So that's what we think all God could be capable of too. But when Jesus says, I love you, what a different kind of love that is than our flawed, sinful, human love. He loves us with a truly divine, truly human love. And notice that He sees you this way. God sees you this way before He even tells you what to do. He doesn't say, do these things and then you'll be dearly loved. Do these things and then you'll be holy. No, you've already been that because of Jesus. He makes you that first. And now you're free to live out these things. Isn't that wonderful? We try to put the cart before the horse so many times. If only we could do these things, be better, uh, then God would love me. No, God loves you as a sinner that you are right now. And because He wants something better for you, because He loves you, He wants to invite you to live the kind of life that Jesus lived. A true, restored humanity. Paul tells us to clothe ourselves and the virtues of Jesus. Verse 12, Paul tells us that we are to live lives of five different things here. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Now let me ask you this. As you read over those five things, if you are that kind of a person, if those are the things you strive for, who is that going to affect in your life? It's going to affect literally everyone. Everyone around you will benefit from you being this kind of person by putting on the characteristics of Jesus. You'll be compassionate to unsympathetic people. You'll be kind to mean-spirited people. You'll be humble for proud people. You'll be meek for arrogant people. And you'll be patient with selfish people. To be human again in Jesus means that you start to look like Him for your neighbors. You start to emulate Jesus as He lived for you. So do you live for Him full of His grace and truth. And this is how the church can be for the world. See, we so often deceive ourselves and think we've got to legislate change first of all. Or we've got to organize these great changes in, in the, the way we live. Folks, maybe those things can be good, but if we don't even start here, all the rest of that's going to be hopeless. If we don't start living out like Jesus, and if churches in this land 
really lived out this way, this nation would be different. We can blame Hollywood actors, Wall Street bankers, pagan politicians all we want, but until the church of Jesus Christ believes that by putting on the nature of Jesus for the world, we will never see change in this world. We start here locally. That's how Maranatha can make a difference. As small and as few a number as we are, if we believe and live this way, God will upend the world through it. You know, let's, let's, let's think about this historically. Let's have a few examples. You know, today is Reformation Day. If you haven't heard that, you haven't been paying attention for most of the service, I think. And it means that we thank God for our spiritual ancestors. We thank God for the men and women that came before us that, being, uh, that, that, that sought to reform the church and the problems in it by being renewed in the Spirit, being convicted of the truth of the Scriptures, and, and trying to retrieve our core beliefs and doctrines and the way that we're supposed to live out. See, the, Re- the Reformation is not an innovation. It's not supposed to be it's not supposed to be adding something new to the church. It's trying to get back to the way the church is supposed to be. Now, we miss the mark on that a lot. There's a lot as, as Protestants we get wrong, I think. But that is the goal of reforming. And I think this is something we forget too. So often when we forget in our remembrance of our spiritual heritage... It's not only that Martin Luther rediscovered in reading Romans 1 that the just shall live by faith and indeed are justified by faith alone. That's true. That's a huge part of of, of what it means to be a a, a reformational person as we get back to those core truths that we read about in the Scriptures. That's true. But that truth didn't stop there. See, truth that just changes in doctrinal way, a truth that just changes you into somebody that believes something and has a set of doctrines, but it doesn't affect the way you live, it's not a full truth. See, We forget about this. We like to remember the doctrines that Martin Luther got back to, but remember, folks, this doctrine drove him to live a more sanctified life. How did he do that? Luther's doctrinal change compelled him for the sake of his suffering neighbors to work out something better in and for the church. Even though at one time it felt like to him it was Martin Luther versus the whole of church and church history. Even though he felt that he was alone in this fight, he was compelled that the Spirit of God who leads into truth means that he has to stand up for what is right, not only doctrinally, but lived out in the life of the church. See, he didn't just fight for those doctrinal changes within the church, he looked at how that was affecting his neighbors. Remember, he fought off the financial injustices and spiritual abuses of the medieval church, not for himself, but for his poor and suffering neighbors that were having to pay unbelievable taxes out the nose to these greedy collection of bishops that were saying, every time a a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Spiritual bribery! See, Luther could have stayed where he was. And he was a deeply flawed man. Let's get that right out of the gate. Even after his 
his theological developments. Deeply flawed and sinful man. But what's so compelling about him is that he just didn't make these doctrinal changes and stay in his ivory tower and, and teach his classes. No, he saw that these things were hurting the people that lived with him, and he had to speak up on their account. Even when it meant that he had to be drive, driven into exile, fearing for his life, he knew that this was true, and if it's true, it must be lived out. See, Maranatha, the doctrine we believe in our mind and accept in our hearts can't, but, can't help but spill out through the works of our hands. If we say we believe something in our mind and accept it in our heart, but we, it doesn't change the way we live, we don't believe it. That is not biblical faith. Faith without works is dead. James would tell. The brother of our Lord would say, yes, you believe Jesus is resurrected, so live like it. People that say, yeah, I believe Jesus is king, but don't live like it, don't really believe it. See, the mistake we make in our reformational doctrine is to think what sets us apart is we have a purer doctrine. It doesn't matter how we live. We have a, we have a better teaching as a church. No! We need a better teaching as a church and a better teaching that causes us to live out the lives that Paul tells us to live out this morning. That's how you know it's real faith. That you have put your skin on the line for Jesus' glory and for the good of the people around you. That's real faith. That's what the Reformation has striven to do. And the truth we were reminded of 504 years ago that if believing in Jesus does not cause you to lovingly and sacrificially and compassionately live for Jesus, the fact of the matter is you just don't believe in Jesus. I heard a Lutheran preacher say recently that we have a terrible habit as Christians to make our personal holiness all about ourselves. We always met, try to measure up with ourselves. We obsess about how we can read the Bible better, how we can pray more often, volunteer more in church, tithe greater, share the gospel more. Those are all good and necessary things. Don't get me wrong. Those are crucial aspects of the Christian life. But this pastor noted how often our motivation can be totally backwards. We make all of those things about how we can improve our track record so that God would look on us more favorably. See, we do those things because we think we'll get a pass with God and we'll look more holy to others. More people will praise us. But folks, Paul tells us this morning, we're already chosen and beloved by God in Christ. You can't improve upon what Christ has done. And so the way we live as Luther would show us and, and I've said this again and again, is that God doesn't need our good works. He's already justified us by His grace through faith alone. He's already done that. But our neighbors need our works. And Jesus told us, love God and then love your neighbor. Those two things go together. You can't have love God and no love for neighbor. Because that is a contradiction of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Putting on Jesus is not just about us. It's about our neighbors too. It's not about making God love us. No, He already loves us. 
Now, Paul tells us, it's about showing our neighbor through the words that we preach, through the the services that we offer in Jesus' name, that God in Christ loves them too. Look at how Paul unpacks this further in verse 13. He says, bear with one another, forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against another. Again, do we do this? Do we do this in order for God to forgive us? No, God's already forgiven us. Paul says we do this because by the cross of Jesus Christ, God has already forgiven us. In other words, this is, comes pouring out of us because we've been forgiven. But let's be real. Forgiveness does not come easy. We cheapen forgiveness if we think it's just an easy thing that can be done willy-nilly. We cheapen forgiveness if we don't think it has to be a work of God in us to let go of the grievances that some people have done against us. We know this all too well. All of us have been slandered or cheated or betrayed, attacked, disbelieved, hurt or assaulted in some way, and it is impossible in our own human flesh, our old sinful selves, to forgive a person that would do that to us. It's impossible with us. And as Robert Smith, one of the great preachers of our age, he did not find it easy to forgive his son's murderer because he was Robert Smith. See, I I had the privilege of sitting under this man when he wanted to think of a, uh, something in the Bible, you know, me, just the Neanderthal that I am, I'd have to go, oh, is that in Isaiah or Jeremiah? And I'd have to maybe Google it or look it up in the back of the Bible. This man would close his eyes and think for a second and then quote the whole passage. He's got nearly all the Scriptures memorized. It was unbelievable. But Robert Smith didn't forgive this young man because he's an extraordinary orator, or because he's got a nearly photographic memory of the Scriptures. No, he forgave his son's murderer when it felt almost impossible, even though he had been preaching this for years, because Jesus could forgive that murderer in him. The Spirit of God could compel Robert Smith to break bread with this young man Because only God can do that in us. Only in the new humanity that we wrap ourselves in of Jesus can we actually live out that way. Folks, if you try to do this apart from Christ, it'll fail every time. If you try to forgive even minor grievances against you on your own volition, you won't succeed. But if you do it by the power of Christ, it can change this world. Folks, we can't do it on our own. We have to, have to wrap up ourselves in the person and works of Jesus. And as the apostle continues in verse 14, we have to put on His love, which is the perfect bond of unity and all these other virtues that we've talked about this morning. When we clothe ourselves in the love of Jesus, Paul says in verse 15 that the peace of let the peace of Christ to which we are also called in one body rule over our hearts. 
Only when we wrap ourselves up in Jesus can we forgive. Only when we wrap ourselves up in His sacrifice on the cross, His work on our behalf, and His love and glory, only then can we be united. Can we lay down arms against one another? Can we let things go because we let them go, not of our own volition, but because Jesus has already taken care of them for us? Even as redeemed people who live in a fallen world, it is so difficult to live out this new humanity. It's the hardest thing in the world to let everything go, to let our possessions go and pick up a cross instead. What an unbelievable thing the Lord said to us when He said, if you want to follow the Lord, go and sell your possessions. Give to the poor and take on this curse and follow Me instead. It's not an easy path to tread. We can't do it in and of ourselves. But with man, although it might be impossible, with God, it's possible. It's only possible because He does it in us. It's impossible to sustain it by our own efforts, but when we wrap ourselves in Jesus, we have hope. The prophet Jeremiah says that our human hearts are desperately and unknowably wicked. And the prophet Ezekiel likens our old human hearts to dead and calcified stone. That's what the greatest religious men that have ever lived, that's their assessment of our humanity. Dead. Rotting in a grave. But in Jesus, in Him alone, we can live new lives and have human hearts. Where we were once terrorized by the unknown, when we were once spiritually dead, we can finally live truly ruled over by the peace of the kingship of Jesus Christ. Friends, you know this all too well, that we need this peace. When we look out at our world and hear all about the wars and rumors of wars, the threats of viruses, when we see the infighting in our own families, and worst of all, when we look at our own hearts and see, like Jeremiah and Ezekiel said, it's filled and dominated with fear and anxiety, with angerness and bitterness, with pride and self-righteousness. Our hearts are constantly at war with ourselves. We desperately need an external peace from Christ to rule over. So Christian, abandon your defensiveness. Get rid of your self-justification. Leave behind your excuses and let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the words of Jesus live in your heart. People often worry about how following Jesus will mean that they have to give up things, and that's true. But what you're giving up really is spiritual poverty to put on the richness of Christ's peace forever. You get the privilege of sharing that Jesus with all those around you. All His knowledge, power, and wisdom we read in verse 16. And we, and we share it, Paul says, in the most basic human way by singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. In other words, this this knowledge and wisdom and power is received in us in such a profound and internal way that we let it go. We release it into this world by singing and worshiping. 
Notice the language that Paul uses here. He talks about teaching and admonishing, about seeing and being thankful. Does that sound familiar to you? Does it sound like something we do? Does it sound like a worship service to you? Folks, this is the primary way that we show that we are truly human again in Jesus. We worship Him in this way. That's where it starts. To show our new humanity in Jesus, to show that He has opened up a new future for the human race, it starts when we worship Him in this way. We worship by teaching His Word, by admonishing one another in wisdom, by singing joyfully, by giving thanks boldly. And these things are the simple truths we believe that the Reformation was getting us back to. We weren't adding something onto the structure of the church. We were going back to the basics of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Christian, do you want to see a difference in your life? Do you want to see a difference in your family, in your work, or in your world? Do you know where you need to start this morning? Do you know where you need to tap into this power? Start right here with worship. And it will spill out into every avenue in your life. That's why Paul, or, or, or rather the, the author of Hebrews, may be one and the same. We don't know. <laughs> I doubt it, but tells us, don't neglect assembling together. Don't do it. You miss out on the blessing of being together, of worshiping together, of being transformed into something new in Jesus together. See, that's why it's important you come to worship. I don't need my ego stroked. You don't, you don't, you don't need to sing a song so God will be appeased with you or, or give a few pennies so that somebody will get off your back or you get you know, some write-off at the end of the year. That's not the way you come to worship. You come to worship Jesus so you can live and be this kind of newly human for your life in this world. It begins here and now, folks, when we pray together, when we give together, when we fellowship together, when we read and confess and speak and rejoice together. That's where we see ground zero for our transformation, for the world's transformation. And that worship, if it's worth anything, can't be about us, our accomplishments, our possessions, or anything about us, or even our reputation. It has to be about Jesus Christ and Him crucified and risen again for sinners like us. Paul ends very simply in verse 17. Whatever you do, Christian, whatever you say, whatever you pass the time with, whatever you work with, literally whatever happens in your life, do it in the name of our Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. See, worship begins here at church, but it doesn't stop here. All of human life is worship. See, it begins here on Sunday morning, the first day of the week. This is how we begin our new week, by worshiping Jesus and letting that carry us through every other moment we worship Him. Worship is everything we do, everything we do to the glory of God. And when we do that, then we do an unbelievable good for this world. Christian, when you leave here today, you will not stop worshiping. Worship will continue on even into what you think is mundane. 
when you go home and eat a good meal or go to a restaurant and eat a good meal or, or you visit with your friends or you take a nap or you do household chores or you watch TV or read a book or hand out candy to trick-or-treaters tonight or you go for a walk or like Robert Smith, you forgive someone that's wronged you. Literally, whatever you do, all of it is worship done because of the Lord Jesus. All of it. Every aspect of your life is an act of worship and gratitude unto Him. You can thank God for the gifts of all these small things. The simple pleasures. The things that you enjoy when you get up in the morning and it is beautiful cold weather and the leaves are shimmering and you put that bagel in the toaster and put cream cheese on it and have a black cup of coffee and you take a bite and take a sip and think, this day couldn't get any better. That is worship because you give that all to Jesus. And He gave that all, even those small things, to us. Because we are these kind of people, we can be a church for this world. Even in the hard things in life, forgiving one another, we can do that for this world because Christ has done that for us. He's made us truly human in Jesus. And in Him, when things are hard, when you feel at your best or your worst, when you're sick, or when you're healthy, when you're tired or when you're rested, when you're poor or when you are rich. Regardless, He came to give you life and life abundant, both now and forever. And we can worship Him in every moment because of that. Let's pray. Father, help us to pursue peace, forgiveness, and love in the name of Jesus and the power of the Spirit. May we see that everything we do is worship because Christ has made us new for His glory and for the good of our world. For it's in His name that we pray and ask all these things. Amen.